Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. This week is really exciting because I had the opportunity to speak to Ben King, who is the recovery officer at the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust for the animal that we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about a frog that you probably haven't heard of unless you live in the UK. So grab some boots, because we're heading to the ponds of England to talk about pool frogs. identify a pool frog from other types of frogs by looking at their patterns. They have a pale stripe that runs down their back, which other frogs don't have. And if you want to see a really great picture of one, check out our Instagram page at OnWildlife. And pool frogs are also really interesting animals because they were once thought to be extinct. They were declared extinct in 1995, but now we know that that's not true. But their numbers are still extremely low, And luckily, Ben and the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust are working to recover their populations. Ben has his master's degree in zoo conservation biology and has worked on the conservation of multiple other species throughout his life. So I can't wait for you guys to hear him talk about not only pool frogs, but just conservation in general. So stick around for that interview after the break. The person that I want to recognize in this week's episode of Notable Figures in Science is Benjamin Banneker. He was born in 1731, and his mother was a freed slave. He was kind of a jack-of-all-trades when it came to science, studying everything from astronomy to insects. He used mathematical calculations to predict the timing of eclipses, and he wrote multiple almanacs that showed his calculations. When he died, most of his work was destroyed in a fire, but one of his journals was able to be recovered. In this journal, he wrote about how cicadas emerge in large numbers every 17 years, and he also made observations about honeybee behaviors. But one of his greatest accomplishments was that he actually built the first clock in America. He was one of the greatest scientists of his time. And if you want to learn more about Benjamin Banneker or this series in general, check out onwildlife.org. Okay, we're back. Here's my interview with Ben King. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. And yourself? I'm I'm great. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm so happy you were able to come onto the podcast. Thank you so much again for coming on. No, honestly, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So um, first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in pool frogs? Yeah, so uh, I'm an early career conservationist, so I'm quite young, um, but I'm in Britain, so obviously you're American. Um, 
I have a background in mainly zoos. So I have a master's in zoo conservation um, from the University of Plymouth. Uh, it, that is linked with Peyton Zoo Environmental Wildlife Park um, and the Wild Planet Trust. Now, uh, right now, I am the ARC um, Bullfrog Recovery Project Officer. The reason I'm interested in bullfrogs is because of their whole story. They, as, as we will talk later on, they, they went extinct from Britain back in the 90s. And I'm really interested because it's been really successful reintroducing them. And it allows me to combine both my zoos of knowledge and exit to conservation with uh, real conservation impacts and releases to the wild. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I really can't wait to get... Uh, talking about that. So we'll definitely talk about that later on in the podcast. Um, so you also work with the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust, like you were talking about. So can you just explain uh, your uh, your role a little bit more there? Yeah, of course. Um, my role right now, I, I only started a couple months ago, but um, because of the nature of the project, my role is constantly changing, it feels. Um, <laughs> There's no, when people say there's no two days the same, it's, it's because everything's changing all the time, I feel. Um, so my main sort of priorities are to lead on the captive rearing of tadpoles. Um, so this is obviously for the bullfrogs. Um, right now, we're, we're, everything is being set up and we are waiting for them to spawn um, so that we can take the eggs and uh, yeah, try and do our best to raise as many little frogs as possible. Um, so right now, that is, that is a, a big part of my job, is preparing a whole facility. Um, right now, I'm trying to liaise with volunteers to make sure that we have the help to uh, actually do it. And then when the time comes, we'll be actually head-starting and looking after these tadpoles. Um, the other main uh, task I have is monitoring at the sites. Um, so currently, there's two reintroduction sites. Uh, there, we're doing count surveys, and we will be doing count surveys and capture surveys of the bullfrogs. Um, they've actually just started to emerge from hibernation the last couple of weeks, which is great. Great to see them out. Um, <laughs> great to start hearing them calling as well. And then, in the future, as I say, everything's constantly changing. So, in the future, obviously, very soon, we're hoping that we'll be securing spawn. Um, we also really are trying to find future sites for reintroductions. Uh, right now, as I say, there's only two sites, which is really successful, but we would like to expand the range of these uh, frogs. And we're also looking into other exit conservation organizations such as zoos and seeing how we can get them involved. And then finally, it's uh, communications. So trying to uh, explain why the bullfrog is important and uh, reach out to wider audiences. Awesome. And it must be so amazing to kind of just be a part of that reintroduction process and actually going out into the field and, and helping them be reintroduced into the wild uh so i can't imagine how great that must be yeah honestly i feel really like this job it <laughs> is it is really good fun as well as knowing you are doing a really important job so i yeah i really couldn't hope for a better job right now <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great and you were talking about how you're actually getting to go into the fields so Frogs are known for their mating calls. Do pool frogs have a recognizable noise that they make that you can really identify and know that this is definitely a pool frog? Um, well, I've got the little clip here if you'd like to hear it. I don't know how good it will be on audio. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Brilliant.
it's just really distinctive. It's really nice. Um, <laughs> when we obviously one of the reasons we monitoring the other amphibians as well is to make sure that as we're out there, we know when the pool frogs start to emerge and when they start breeding. Um, so when we first heard our first pool frog, me and uh, Emily, my the, the project assistant. Um, we were just sat eating lunch and all of a sudden we heard a calling right <laughs> behind us, which is really strange, but really cool. That It always comes when you're least expecting it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I don't know how the weather's been in America right now, but the spring here has been really sort of unusually cold and that's for Britain. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the frogs are emerging slightly later than we're expecting, but um, like, like I say, it, it's great to finally hear and see them out and about. The reason why pool frogs need warmer weather is because they're ectotherms, meaning that their body temperature relies on the outside temperature. It's sort of interesting because pool frogs really like uh, hot temperatures, but because of that, it makes it really nice that we can pick and choose when we do our surveys. The best days will be the nice days. So <laughs> if it's raining and cold, we might go out and see absolutely nothing. So there's not much point in doing it. You, you wait until the nice days and go out there, get on with the other work that you can do on the bad days. <laughs> Wow, that really just works out for you. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's really ideal. And uh, how do you identify a pool frog from any other type of frog? Yeah, so the habitat for pool frogs is actually quite specific. So they really like, it's called a pingo. And it's, uh, it's back in the past ice age, about ten to 12,000 years ago, these little pingos were created um, by the ice retreating. And this basically is ideal habitat where the pool frog inhabited. Um, and so they like sort of open habitats that have these pools. Generally, you need grazing animals that will graze and keep the sort of uh, plant and tree shrubs down. Um, but it's, it's great if there's surrounding woodlands, um, which is ideal. This is why we picked both sites, um, because they're great for the actual pool frogs. Um, the other thing with common frog, obviously the only other species in Britain frog is the common frog and just from its name it's really obvious that it is really wide, widespread um they're really generous and they're really successful um but they're the common frogs um latin name is rana uh i don't want to get to right, rana temporaria temporaria <laughs> um and basically the, the temporaria means they they generally like to spawn in temporary ponds um and that's basically because there's less aquatic um, predators for them and their tadpoles. But the pool frog much prefers a sort of a very permanent pond that's always going to be there. And uh, yeah, they just generally like the deeper, deeper waters. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. And yeah. um, you were also talking about how they are coming out of hibernation uh, soon, at least. So how does that process work for pool frogs how is the hibernation process working for them as i say they, they came out a couple of weeks ago so around the end of april they generally hibernate though from october all the way until about this time and that's just because britain is really quite cold um <laughs> so yeah they've been tucked away all nice and warm that like i say they like um sort of open habitat but with mixed uh, woodland nearby and this is exactly why they've the sites we have chosen to reintroduce them have been picked. And basically it provides a great hibernation site. They can hibernate in the leaf litter 
And generally, they, they like it when the pools are within about 250 to within a few hundred metres of the ponds. They, they don't like travelling massively far from the ponds, and it means it's really easy for them to get back when the uh, breeding season comes around again. Oh, that's great. And, and uh, I never really thought about frogs, where they go during yeah. the winter time. So it's interesting to know that they do hibernate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Particularly in Britain. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm assuming tropical species don't, but here in Britain, yeah, the frog type, it just gets too cold. Yeah, you're going to need to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh, are there any other cool adaptations that pool frogs have that kind of make them stand out? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a few little quirks they have. So as we were saying with the communication, they are actually the only frog in um, Britain that has two vocal sacs. And so it's on either side of their jaw. And we sent you a really nice photo of it. So hopefully people can see it. And these are always white in a northern bullfrog. Um, other sort of bullfrogs or other introduced species, it's more coloured and it varies. But in a bullfrog, in a northern bullfrog, it is always white. Um, the other thing is because they hibernate, um, other common frogs do hibernate, but they come out much earlier in the year, and so it means the pool frogs are breeding much later. They also have uh, spawn clumps that are very small in comparison to common frogs, and they're about they're, they're equivalent to about a walnut in size. They're quite unusual because uh, any other amphibians in this country, or any other frogs or toads in this country, their eggs are generally black in colour or very dark, whereas a pool frog has half of it's brownie, darkish, but then the other side is very white and green colored. It's, it's quite strange, but it's very distinctive when you see it. Frog eggs need to be in the water for the most part, and they look like big clumps of clear gelatin with black dots inside. Those black dots are the embryos. And also because they obviously breed later in the year, um, their tadpoles have to grow very quickly, but they, they, they grow to a much larger size than common frogs, so they can get quite quite chunky they can get to about eight eight centimeters when they start start oh, wow. metamorphosizing into little little froglets yeah that's really cool and are they important to the ecosystems that they live in in any sort of way it's a really tricky question to answer because there's so many factors um i, I always think of it as how is a species important with their ecosystem services and how do they fit inside the ecosystem um so pool frogs they they're really important just for the, as for any amphibian, they're really important in the stability and resilience of ecosystems. So this, this partly is down to the food web and the energy dynamics they, they have. They're also really important in regulating prey populations. Um, we know at sites there's, they generally like invertebrate prey, um, but they also, for some reason, they like flying insects. And at, at the sites, we, we, we know as we experience, there's lots of mosquitoes and midges. So if they're controlling them, we're, we're more than happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, And the rest of the world is too. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think any amphibians that are doing it are very much appreciated. But generally, there's so many different sort of aspects that you can look at. And for example, all these uh, predators and prey that I've just mentioned, they've all got their own implications as well in the ecosystem. Um, as I say, uh, pool frogs are sort of low in abundance now comparison to other amphibians but they're, they're really that that makes them really key uh, environmental indicators so it's really easy to see if the pool frog population there's something's wrong if something's not going right which luckily it is going right 
Um, but it would be really easy to see if there's anything wrong with the ecosystem health or quality in any way. Um, and obviously with the pool frogs specifically, we as a uh, charity, we're, we're trying to recover this species, but in order to do that, we have to have the habitat. And again, this is a massive sort of um, part of the whole ecosystem. If we have the healthy habitat, we're going to have healthy pool frogs. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like they do a lot. They are a prey species and they also help to keep uh, other populations down. And without them, uh, it could cause an imbalance in that food web. Definitely, definitely. I mean, amphibians in general are really sort of amazing creatures. But um, yeah, there's so many sort of applications they could have. Um, for example, many amphibians have sort of uh, biological chemicals that have been used in sort of anti-cancer, anti-viral compounds that could be real, but you don't know that unless you test on the species. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we do test on a really critically endangered species, but you, <laughs> you would never know. Um, so, yeah, ha having them is really important because there's so many potential sort of benefits of having them that you don't fully appreciate until they're gone. Yeah, and they're not only benefits to the ecosystem, but just like you said, to us too. Exactly, we can, yeah, we can use exactly. them for our own benefit. And going off of that question, uh, pool frogs were once announced to be extinct in the wild in the 90s. So obviously they're not anymore. So what kind of efforts have you been taking to change that? As I say, the pool frogs are really sort of interesting case study. Um, because there are uh introduced species in britain to be honest the pool frog was always believed to be an invasive species that had been introduced but back in 2000 as we say they, they went extinct in the 90s um but back in 2005 um researchers from within arc uh published a paper basically proving that the northern pool frog was a native species and basically from this study, uh, it came that, that Britain wanted to reintroduce bullfrog. Uh, so the first reintroduction occurred in 2005. Um, and like I say, bullfrogs were taken from Sweden with permission from the Swedish government. Um, they were house screened out there to make sure they weren't going to introduce any diseases. And they were brought back to Norfolk, back in East Anglia in the south, southeast of England. Um, and since then, they've been breeding at the site really well they've been surviving really well and they've been really successful the second reintroduction happened in uh 2015 at a place called thompson common um again in norfolk not very far away and that was actually the last place that northern pool frogs were known to um occur before they went extinct in the 90s and this was actually done rather than bringing more frogs to sweden the frogs at the first site had spawn head started, and it was the young of that that was reintroduced to Thompson Common. So, how we're planning on doing it is actually a proven, a proven uh, way of uh, establishing more colonies. Um, during all this time, there's been constant sort of population monitoring to make sure the frogs are doing really well, and there's also disease monitoring that is linked with uh, the Institute of Zoology at um, the Zoological Society of London, who owns London Zoo. Um, they've been really amazing, making sure that everything's sort of, we're not introducing any new diseases that could be really harmful to either the populations or other native species. Um, 
Yeah, I, I keep saying the sort of first and second region of exercise. As I said, the second region of exercise is Thompson Common. First one is still sort of hidden because obviously the frogs are so rare. Um, it would be very easy, even if it was an enthusiastic individual, it would be really easy if someone collected a lot of frogs just because they were really interested or wanted to keep them as pets, it would be really easy for them to damage the whole population. Um, oh, wow. So it is, it is still quite confidential. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not allowed to say about the first site. <laughs> Even we refer to it as Site X. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it is almost ground zero. That, that is where we are working from, which is, yeah, really exciting. But obviously, yeah, there's reasons why we have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's amazing. And it kind of shows you how even when you think a population is done extinct, there could still be a way to to rehabilitate that population uh, into the habitat that it once lived in. Uh, it kind of gives me hope for other species as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, there, there was a lot of management work. Like, like I say, that was a really quick summary of the whole work that's been done. There's yeah. been so <laughs> many partners um, over the years. Um, I wouldn't want to sort of mention lots because obviously I, I feel so guilty if I left anyone out. Um, but yeah, it's been a really successful project. And I, I think, yeah, it's a really good case study of how a species can be reintroduced. Um, but having said that, it's been really closely monitored and we are really targeting the northern bullfrogs which are known to be native, whereas the continental ones from more southern in Europe um, are known to not, not be. Um, so, yeah, we want to keep the genetics really pure. Yeah, and, and that goes to show that it takes a lot of work and planning uh, to do this. So if we really want to make some change, we got to get a lot of people to really care about it, uh, just like you guys do yeah. with the pool frogs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I say, we're focusing on one specific species. But it's having massive benefits for the whole ecosystem. It's not. It's not just we want to save the species for the sake of saving the species. It, it's it's to, uh -huh. to benefit everything, which I think is really great. Yeah, definitely. So I'm sure a lot of people are hearing this and they're thinking, "How can we help pool frogs?" So is there anything that the average person can do to help them? Well, as a charity, we are always. Um, we are running donations. We, we we need sort of funding, unfortunately, for all the all this great work. Um, we we can't do it for free, uh, unfortunately, which would be lovely if we could. Yeah, it's just <laughs> not how the world works. Um, yeah, but when I think more broadly, um, it's not just the pool frogs that can be helped by an average person. Um, it, it, it's also partly what shouldn't you do. Um, so, as I say, we have uh, vets and sort of biologists at the Institute of Zoology who do all this disease uh, testing. Um, and basically, we're trying to stop any sort of potential disease risk. So just if, if you please don't sort of go releasing all your pet frogs or sort of, yeah, using a net in the wild that could be transferring anything to uh, um, wild populations of frogs. Um, again, just don't go out collecting a load of known sort of endangered species. It's, it's, it's really sort of straightforward things. It's just, it's very easy for a few individuals to create quite a large impact. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's really easy just to not 
try and tamper with what's out in the in the environment. You can observe from afar and and enjoy that, but make sure that you're not interfering with anything. No, definitely. I'm, I'm not saying don't go out. It, it, it's it's lovely, honestly. Um, Thompson Common, um, the site we released the frogs. They it is off public, so the people people generally can't get to the frogs. However, the actual common is in quite a large area, and the frogs. Um, my manager, John Baker, he he's heard frogs calling at ponds that are accessible to the locals. So clearly they are expanding their range. And it's, it's honestly, it's amazing if you can go and hear them calling and see them. I mean, it's, it's great to sort of get out in nature and sort of really enjoy the benefits that these natural ecosystems bring. Um, it's just being sensible and not sort of introducing diseases or non-native sort of species. For example, there is no um, American bullfrogs in Britain, which obviously shouldn't <laughs> be here, but... That they've made it here somehow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So some somebody, some pet owner probably decided they were going to release their bullfrog. <laughs> not a great idea. Well, um, obviously, obviously, it's not an ideal result. But it, it, again, I don't think anyone. No one's doing this maliciously. It's it's, it's just yeah, yeah, lack of sort of understanding almost. Which hopefully things like this podcast should uh, help enlighten people, help educate yeah, people. I, 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 I hope so. Yes. I really hope so. <laughs> So before you go, uh, where can we find information about the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust? Yeah, so obviously we have our website. So it's www.arc-trust.org. Um, there, there is loads of great information there. Um, there's all the sort of work we do, all the projects. The Pool Frogs has a specific project page, but there's many other projects we run. There's also just general facts and sort of just uh, there's there's lots of sort of training and education resources the other thing is also we have a lot of social media accounts so we have facebook instagram twitter linkedin um so it's great if uh, we can gain support through that yeah definitely a- everybody should absolutely go check them out yeah and ben <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> for coming on to the show again i really learned a lot and i really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge no brilliant thank you very much for having me and hopefully Oh, yeah. I I taught you a few things. (laughs) You did. More than a few. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you very much. I don't know about you guys, but that interview really made me want to support conservation efforts. The fact that they were able to start recovering pool frog populations when they were thought to be extinct makes you really feel like it's never too late to help out. You should absolutely go check out the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust. And frogs everywhere are struggling right now, which is why you should also check out Save the Frogs and the Amphibian Survival Alliance. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of pool frogs. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife and on TikTok at on wildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's on wildlife. You've been listening to on wildlife with Alex Ray. 
On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details.